Turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis chapter 29. Records searching for traces of uh, births and marriages and deaths and property deeds of their ancestors looking for their roots. Why do we care about such things? Well, probably because our ancestors would seem to tell us something about ourselves. Perhaps they explain why we are the way we are. Or perhaps if they were great people, they give us some bragging rights and make us feel more significant. Whatever our specific reason, we all know, uh, inherently it seems, that the tiny in, at the tiny headwaters, the stream is defined. That flows in and becomes the great river. Well, today we look at the headwaters of God's people, the fathers of our faith. In this text, we're going to talk about uh, the circumstances of the births of Jacob's sons. They eventually become the fathers of the twelve tribes of Israel. That's the beginning of God's holy nation in the Old Testament. And that Old Testament nation is the roots of God's church in the New Testament, of which church we are a part. These are our forefathers. These are the roots of the church. So let's read the account and see what we can learn about our forefathers. And perhaps about ourselves. Genesis 29, 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben. For she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord, so she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister, so she said to Jacob, Give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, Am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Then she said, here is Bilhah, my maidservant, sleep with her so that she can bear children for me. And that through her I can, I too can build a family. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. Jacob slept with her. She became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this she named him Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, I have had a great struggle with my sister, and I have won. So she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her hands, her maidservant, Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's servant, Zilpah, bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, What good fortune! And she named him Gad. Leah's servant, Zilpah, bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, How happy am I! The women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. During wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother, Leah. Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. 
But she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said, he can sleep with you tonight and return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. God listened to Leah and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my maidservant to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honor because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Sometime later she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and opened her womb. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, May the Lord add to me another son. And we'll stop with verse 24. <clears throat> this section actually divides into three parts. The end of chapter 29, verse 31 to 35, is an account of Leah and uh, the first four sons that she has. <clears throat> and then in chapter 30, the first 13 verses are the account of this struggle between Leah and Rachel and the four sons that are born to their maidservants. And then, beginning in verse 14 and down through verse 24 of chapter 30, we have the accounts of uh, three sons born after Rachel and Leah finally struck a deal, and we have a reference to the fourth son who's not born yet, Benjamin, who will be born later. So here, uh, here the, 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 the section divides into four sons, four sons, uh, four sons, although the last of, of the third four is only referred to. Let me suggest that from these three sections, three, th three different parts of the story, that uh, God has three things to teach us as we reflect on them. The first is this, <clears throat> that God blesses the broken. God blesses the broken. It's hard to read the account of Jacob's life without being moved with some pity toward Leah. The very first thing we, heard, we, we read about Leah is that she's not as pretty as her little sister. And then she's used by her father Laban to trick Jacob into seven additional years of servitude. And though she must have been a willing participant in that wedding trickery, you have to feel some pity for a woman who is married off to a man who does not want her. Can't you feel her shame and her embarrassment when after the wedding night, Jacob opens his eyes, and as we read in the end of the text last week, there is Leah, when he thought he was getting Rachel, whom he loved. And he never did come to love Leah. In spite of all of her efforts, he never loved her. He always, obviously, only loved Rachel, her younger sister. What kind of life must it have been? Leah and her maidservant Zilpah, tolerated by a man who cared nothing for her but 
whom she probably loved from the beginning. What a pitiful situation. What a beaten down, broken hearted, hurting woman Leah must have been. But folks, God blesses the broken. We see it happen in verses 31 to 35 as Leah begins to have children. The text leaves us no doubt as to why this is happening this way. It says explicitly, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And so Leah began to bear children. First she bore a son whom she named Reuben. Reuben means, look, a son. For she says, the Lord has looked upon my misery. And then she conceived a second time and bore a second son whom she named Simeon. Simeon is a word play on the verb to hear. For Leah says, the Lord heard that I'm not loved. And then she bore a third son and named him Levi. Levi means to join or to attach. For in this son, she said, certainly the Lord will attach me to my husband more closely. And then she bore a fourth son and she called him Judah, which means to praise, for she found her consolation, in her, in, 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 though she was unloved by her husband, in praising God. But you see, in this little section, there is no question that God is the one who is acting here. The story isn't about Leah and her sons, it's about God. For God closed the womb of Rachel, who was so favored. But God blessed the downtrodden Leah with sons. In fact, the blessing upon Leah is way more than we might immediately perceive reading this text. For in that culture where being the firstborn was such an important thing, Leah bore the firstborn son. And as we look through the Old Testament, we see that Judah would become the line, the kingly line from whom the Messiah would come. Leah bore Judah. And as we look through the Old Testament, we see that the Levites, the sons of Levi, were the priests who were the mediators to bring people to God. Leah bore Levi. In fact, of the twelve sons of Jacob, eventually Leah bore six of the twelve, though she was unloved and neglected by her husband. But you see, God blesses the broken. This is not an isolated, obscure thought. This is a repeated truth of the Bible, that God blesses the broken, the nobodies, the hurting. I just think of some examples. David, who had many brothers. Prophet Samuel comes and says to David's father, Jesse, gather your sons, because I'm going to anoint one of them to be the next king. And David's father, David's out in the field, tending the flocks. David's father never even thinks to call his young son. He's so insignificant in his own father's mind, and yet he's God's anointed one. And when the Messiah eventually comes, the greater son of David, what does he preach? Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted. The last will be first. And when the Spirit later speaks of the makeup of Christ's church, what do we read? The Apostle writes, look at yourself. 1 Corinthians 1. Not many of you are wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one would boast before him. Oh, it's throughout the whole scripture, this truth. God blesses the broken. I suspect some of us need to be reminded of this this morning. Thankfully, we don't practice polygamy anymore, but there are plenty of wives who are ignored and despised by their husbands nonetheless. Many more of us bear the burden of guilt for our participation in the very sins which now are inflicting on us their terrible consequences, just like Leah did. And who of us at some time has not known what it is to be despised, or hated, or used, or neglected, or hurting, and wounded in the depths of our soul? Well, this morning I say to you, God has not forgotten. God extends blessing to the broken. It's my deep concern that every one of you would know the blessedness of the brokenness this morning. A blessing that comes through radical trust in the Lord Jesus. In spite of whatever the world might have dealt out to you. Well, we may feel pity for those who get trouble they don't deserve, but then what about those who are foolish or even wicked, who get what they deserve and really mess things up? What about them? Well, that brings us to the second point we ought to learn from this text, and that's this, that God works in spite of us. God works in spite of us. Some men might fantasize that, it, that two wives would be better than one. But polygamy, though it's reported in the Bible, is never glorified or proved of in the Bible, and it's never shown to work in the Bible. As a practical matter, verses 1 to 13 ought to cure you of any such fantasy, that this would be a good deal. Here we see a bitter rivalry between of these two wives that could hardly be more intense than it is in this domestic setting of two wives in the same household. Rachel and Leah hate each other. They're filled with jealousy and bitterness. One is loved but has no children. The other has children but is unloved and neglected. And so they abandon any notion that God is sovereign over the giving of children. And instead they begin to have a war. 
A war of trying to have children any way they can, specifically through their maidservants, a method which had already proved disastrous when Sarah tried it with her maidservant, Hagar. What a mess. What a terrible mess. But wonder of wonders, God still works here to fulfill his promises to Abraham in spite of this unbelievable, messy, wicked situation. We see that mess, that wickedness, first of all, in Rachel's actions. <coughs> the beginning of this chapter, Rachel, seeing that she was barren, was filled with jealousy, and so she struck out at her husband. Remember, she's the one who's loved. She's the favored one. But she strikes out of Jacob, verse 1. Give me children or I'll die, she says. Ironically, she eventually did die, bearing children. You see here, she has abandoned any hope in God. She's just blaming her husband. What's wrong with you? Obviously, nothing was wrong with Jacob. He had had six sons by Leah. How different Rachel, Rachel's action is from Hannah later on, who was another barren woman who also was uh, taunted by a rival wife. Yet we read of Hannah in 1 Samuel, in bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. Not Rachel, she's striking out whatever way she can. Then think of Jacob's response to his wife. She fires at him. What's wrong with you? Why don't you give me children? And he fires right back. Am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? And of course, he's theologically correct there. It's not his decision. It's God's action. But he was totally devoid of understanding totally devoid of tenderness toward his wife? Doesn't he see her pain? Doesn't he care about her longing for children? How different from his father Isaac when his mother was barren and we read Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. You see both Rachel and Jacob are only fighting about it. But they're failing to trust the Lord and they're failing to rest in his promises. <laughs> but God's working in spite of them. And then back to the rivalry. Well, Rachel starts it. Apparently having given up on God and having given up on, given up on her husband, she says, okay, well, I'll do it my way. And she gave her maidservant Bilhah to her husband. And so Bilhah bore two sons for Rachel. Dan and Naphtali. But when Rachel names those sons, she tells us more about her own spiritual state than anything else. For Dan means, I'm vindicated. And Naphtali means, I've struggled with my sister, and I won. <laughs> well, not to be undone, Leah, who had known such blessing of the Lord, now stoops to a fight with Rachel on her terms. 
I too have a maidservant, Zilpah, and so she gives maid, her maidservant to Jacob as a concubine, and sure enough, Zilpah bears two sons for Leah, Gad and Asher. Oh, but gone are the names that speak of God's blessing. Now Leah's thinking only of herself. She's only gloating over her good fortune. She names her first son Gad, which means fortune. It's, it's a word meaning good luck. I've had good luck. <laughs> and Asher means happy one. And Leah says in verse 13, happy, how happy I am. The women will call me happy. In other words, Leah's saying, na, 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 I'm better than you are. Bruce Waltke says of this period, they used the names of their sons to hurl malicious darts at each other. No son is named for his father. Indeed, Jacob is reduced to being a stud. But in all of this, in this messy mess, God, still works out his plan in spite of them. Fulfilling his promise to Abraham and Isaac and now Jacob to give them many descendants and to make a great nation to build his church. God is still working. You see, folks, God's promise to work out his saving plan does not mean that he will always cause his people to do the right things. That's not true. Like the truth is, we sometimes do miserable things and suffer terrible consequences for it, as we saw last week. But God is not at the mercy of our ignorance. He's not even at the mercy of our wickedness. No one can thwart God's sovereign plan. Not his enemies. Not his own people. No, God works in spite of. This week someone sent me an interesting quote from Martin Luther wherein he reflects on this fact that it is God who does the work, not him. Says Luther, see how much God has been able to accomplish through me. Though I did no more than pray and preach, the word did it all. I wish, had I wished I might have started a conflagration at Worms. But while I sat and drank beer with Philip of Amsdorf, God dealt the papacy a mighty blow. And so in Jacob's family, God is working out his plan. Oh, make no mistake, they are wicked in all of this. The Lord does not approve of this sinful jealousy and strife. The Lord does not approve of these multiple wives. The Lord is not willing to have marriage so debased Marriage which he created for his own glory and for man's good. God is not pleased with all of that, but God still is working out his plan. Right on schedule. What a great truth. Never do we see this truth more vividly than in the cross of Christ, folks. For there we see the wickedness of the Jewish leaders, who though they knew the law of God, and they knew God's word backward and forward, would not have God's Son as their Messiah. And there we see the betrayal of the crowd that though they shouted Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they allowed themselves to be manipulated and to be crying crucify him by the end of the week. And there we see the corruption of Pilate who was willing to execute a a known innocent man for the sake of political expediency. 
And there we see the cowardice of the disciples who abandoned Jesus and ran for their lives when trouble came. Oh, but here we also see how God worked his saving plan in spite of them all. Indeed, God used even their wickedness to bring about his salvation. That's just how God is. Your people, if our salvation rests on our own faithfulness or our best efforts or even our good intentions, we are truly without hope. But the scriptures say that when we were enemies of God, sinners, God sent his son to make atonement for our sin. And when we were running in the opposite direction, God sent his spirit to turn our hearts around and turn us toward himself. So that everyone who turns and believes in Jesus will certainly be saved. And everyone who is saved will freely then admit for all of eternity, God saved me in spite of myself. Oh, but a text isn't through. One more thing. There's a little bit more to the story in verses 14 to 21. For here we see that while God blesses the broken that we saw in the end of chapter 29, and while God works in spite of our failings that we see in this tension that happens in the first part of chapter 30, that God will not have us looking anywhere else for help. Which brings us to our last point. That we have no help but the Lord. We have no help but the Lord. And increasingly in our day, the opposite of faith in Christ is not simply unbelief, but it's idolatry. Increasingly, we've seen people turn their back on the Lord in order to seek spiritual power elsewhere. There's an alarming rise of pagan spirituality going on all around us. But here the Lord rejects the notion that there is any such power to look to. Here the Lord wants us to see clearly that we have no hope. We have no help but in him. He shows us this in a couple of ways. First of all, beginning in verse 14, we have this mandrake incident. Leah's son, Reuben, who's a boy, is out playing in the fields and he finds some mandrake plants. The mandrake plants look kind of like, um, kind of like overgrown dandelions with uh, little plums or something that grow at the bottom. These mandrake plants immediately become a source of bargaining between Rachel and Leah. And the prize being bought and sold is nothing less than Jacob, the husband's sexual service. Leah sells Rachel the mandrakes in exchange for extra turns with the husband Jacob. It's reduced to this. Why? What's going on here? Why would Rachel, who wants so desperately to have a child, give up the opportunity to, to, to be with her husband in order to get these mandrake plants? What's going on? Well, in that culture, the mandrake plants were thought to bring fertility. The roots of the plant are shaped <clears throat> like the lower part of the human body. The fruit was thought to be aphrodisiac. 
In other words, Rachel gives up this immediate opportunity to make love to her husband in exchange for some magic that she thought she could work. Some fertility right, like the pagans have. You see, Rachel has abandoned any notion that God gives children. She has abandoned any hope in her husband. So now she's turning to do the things the pagans do. She put her faith in a false hope. But God resoundingly rejects this kind of thinking. For notice what happens. <coughs> Leah, who gives up the mandrake plants now bears two more sons, though her womb has been barren for years now. So Issachar and Zebulun are born. And Rachel, who put her hope in the mandrakes and wagered everything for the mandrake plants, well, she sits in vain and waits with no more, no children, while her sister bears even more. It doesn't work. God makes sure it doesn't work. For you see, God alone has the power to open and close the wombs of his people. As Psalm 127 reminds us, unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Sons are a heritage from the Lord. Children a reward from him. God is making it clear to them that he will have none of this pagan ritual. We have no help but in the Lord. Oh, dear people, when we're desperate, when we're desperate, it's a dangerous place to be. For desperate people grasp at straws. Desperate souls who have secretly harbored the notion that God has not come through for me like he should have will grasp at other powers to do what God didn't do when things really get bad. And so while our desperation is a wonderful opportunity to learn to trust God at a level that we've never trusted Him before, it also presents us the temptation to idolatry in one of its many forms, and there are so many. It tempts us to pursue some pagan answer to make up for what we perceive God failed to do for us. But God wants us to know that we have no hope. We have no help but him. This morning I call you to guard your heart. Don't just coast along breathing in the cultural air around us. For folks, it is polluted by pagan notions. No, we must constantly renew our minds by the word of God we must set our minds not on the things of the flesh, but on the things of the Spirit. We must test every spirit to see if it's from God, to see if it conforms to his word. For we have no help but the Lord, and we dare not look elsewhere. Well, but God doesn't just reject Rachel's false hope. At the very end of the story here, he remembers her in her distress. Look at verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and opened her womb. She became pregnant and gave birth 
to a son. Finally, Rachel seems to have come to the end of herself. She's given up on trusting in her good looks. She's given up trusting in her favored status. She's given up even looking to her husband as the answer to her needs. She's given up on having sons by her handmaidens. She's given up on the mandrakes that the culture around us told her would help. She's given up on everything. And now in her broken, utter desperation, God remembers. And she bears a son. And she named him Joseph. In that name there's a double meaning. The word Joseph sounds like the word for remove. And Rachel says, God has removed my disgrace. But the word Joseph actually means not remove, but add. And this name is Rachel's prayer that God would add yet another son. That this would only be the beginning of his blessing. And sure enough, we'll later find out that God gave her another son named Benjamin. But you see, the incident isn't about Rachel or her sons even. Here God is making a point, both negatively by what he withholds, and positively by how and when he grants his blessing. God is making the point that we have no help but in the Lord. Yes, here we have opportunity to return to our roots, to go back to the headwaters of God's holy people, the twelve sons who became the twelve tribes of Israel. And here at the headwaters we learn how things work, what the river will be like that flows from this stream, what the children will be like who descend from these ancestors. And so what do we learn here? What great truths would God teach us? What is unique about being the people of God? What's the central thing here that comes through? Grace. 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 God blesses the broken. That's grace. God works in spite of all of our failures and our messiness, our wickedness. That's grace. And we have no help but the Lord. But that's enough. Pure grace. As Keith Green sang it so powerfully 20 years ago, nothing lasts except the grace of God by which I'm saved in Jesus. And I know that I would surely fall away except for grace by which I'm saved. Amen. Thank you, dear Father, for your great grace. Oh, Father, as we look at the story of these the family of Jacob. Lord, we see 
familiar things. We see the failings and the bitterness and the jealousy and the strife. And the quickness to devise other plans that don't involve trusting you or asking you or waiting upon you. Lord, we see these things that sound so familiar to us all woven together in this hideous picture. And yet, Lord, the impressive thing to us is not how ugly the picture is, but how great your grace is to build your people, to fulfill your promises, in spite of all of this. And Lord, when we think about grace in spite of wickedness, grace even in the midst of wickedness, our hearts are turned to the cross. For there, Lord, we see it most perfectly. And there, Lord, we rest our hope in Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.